I have to give credit where it's due. I was standing on the shoulders of giants. From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My guest on this episode is Dr. James Hempling, a field development scientist for Bayer Crop Science in the Western U.S. I knew James as a prominent scholar at Rutgers University, studying anthracnose basal rot and later his Ph.D. work on dollar spot modeling and action thresholds. And since we're talking anthracnose in Rutgers University... It's a perfect time to thank our sponsor, the plant food company at Cranberry, New Jersey. Founded in 1946 by Ed Platts, now led by his son Grant and my old pal Tom Weiner. Anthracnose basil rot on annual bluegrass and other species is worse when plants are stressed. Research with plant food company programs has shown that proper nutrient management, especially nitrogen, will reduce anthracnose issues and allow for maximum playability. Don't take my word for it. Contact your local plant food rep and get more information. I'm joined today by Dr. James Hempfling, field development scientist at Bayer Environmental Science. And I know James as a scholar for nine years and so many months, James, at Rutgers University. How did a kid from Enid, Oklahoma, wind up stuck in New Jersey for nine years? Yeah, Frank. Well, great to be here. Good morning. Sure. It's uh, kind of a Cinderella story of sorts. Like a, a lot of folks in the industry, I started out before I could even drive a car, mowing lawns, had my parents take me around town, mowing family members' lawns. By the time I got into high school, I was into golf and decided I wanted to build a putting green in my backyard. Oh, no. <laughs> so my parents let me dig a cavity and backfilled it with just playground sand. I got it at the local hardware store and bought some pin cross seed online and bought a uh, McLean walk mower that can mow down to five sixteenths of an inch and, and made that happen the summer before I went to undergrad. Of course, I did everything wrong. It didn't last very long, but that was my first entry into golf turf there. Yeah, and then you got a gig with the school district that apparently put you to work in all kinds of places. And, sure. you know, I, I got to yeah. believe, and it's one of the things I noticed. First off, you share building a backyard putting green with Bill Kreiser. Bill is also a, a legendary backyard putting green. I think he's built two, one when he was prior to high sure. school and, and one where he is out there now. So... You went to Oklahoma State, mm -hmm. obviously, I could see, came back east, uh, did some intern work at Ridgewood Country Club, and of course, just a fine operation there at Ridgewood. Mm -hmm. You really got to see it perform at the highest level. Was that your entry to thinking about graduate school? Was the internship? And I guess the second part of that is, why didn't it turn out to be being a golf course superintendent versus being a scholar? Yeah, great question, Frank. That fall semester before my internship, I took my first turf pathology class with Nathan Walker at Oklahoma State, and he had this assignment where we had to write a review of a peer-reviewed journal article of any turf pest. So before I did that internship at Ridgewood, I called up the assistant superintendent at the time, Kurt Chambers, and I asked him what pests they struggle with at Ridgewood. Remember, I'm in Oklahoma. I don't have any experience with POA at that point. And Kurt said, I should read a paper on annual bluegrass, weevil, or anthracnose. And so I chose anthracnose, and little did I know, just a couple of years later, I'd be starting my master's degree projects on anthracnose. But I'm a first-generation college student. Nobody on either side of my family, mom or dad's side, has a uh, 
bachelor's degree. And so for me to go on to grad school was a very new thing. And luckily, I had a lot of encouragement along the way at Oklahoma State. A lot of mentors, my academic advisor and other folks saw that potential in me and said, hey, you should think about grad school. And uh, I really didn't know what I was doing. So I had to rely on a lot of other folks to hold my hand and, and, and give me advice. And for that, I'm, I'm really grateful. Yeah. And of course, everybody's got a story with somebody who mentored them. And it's one of the things that makes this industry really rich. But thank you for bringing up Anthracnose, right? Where would we be without your 10 years uh, at Rutgers University? <laughs> I mean, is there an angle you think you didn't study this thing from or your work didn't intersect top dressing sand and all John Inguijado's work and then the microbe work with Lisa and then towards your PhD work? Uh, we're going to get to the dollar spot stuff, but talk to me really about that culmination paper, that BMP paper that you guys produced. What was it like to be studying one thing so intensely for mm. so long? Yeah. And you, you said, it. I, I have to give credit where it's due. I, I was standing on the shoulders of giants, yeah, you know, of course. with Johnny Guajardo and Joe Roberts. Yeah preceding me there, but I was happy to do this kind of capstone work with Jim Murphy and Bruce Clark at Rutgers. And um, you're right, we kind of studied all aspects of it, Santop dressing, verticutting, nitrogen mowing, all that stuff. And a couple of these projects, we did all these practices together to see how they interact and try to determine if one was uh, more important than the other, or ranked them in, in importance. And um, it was really unique, Frank. I mean, how many folks get to spend so much time diving into one area. And just to talk about that paper where we combined nitrogen mowing and sand top dressing, it was a really cool field trial. It was kind of like one of those stacking Russian dolls where we had these big plots of mowing height, high or low mowing, you know, an eighth of an inch or 0 0.09 inches. And then within those mowing heights, we had nitrogen, high or low, two pounds or four pounds per thousand per year. And then within the nitrogen plots, we had sand top dressing a high or low amount to represent either a very low sand top dressing program, something we'd say is insufficient, or something mm -hmm. that's a high top dressing program where we're going out every couple of weeks. So a real systems-based approach to doing it, right? I mean, that that's yeah. the thing that's really tricky sometimes. And I've spent a career doing systems research and honestly, sometimes I couldn't tell you what singular factor may mm -hmm. be involved, but... I think you guys have identified a few singular factors here. And so let me get right to it. You know, it's we're going to release this episode in the summer of 2021, and it's been hot and steamy and stressful, and the stress is starting to build as it normally does in cool season areas or in, in warm season areas where they're trying to grow bent grass maybe a little bit too far south. What are you going to tell a golf course superintendent if you had to whittle it down to one or two things, uh, the best cultural practices to use to avoid uh, anthracnose? Right. I would say that the four most important factors for anthracnose would be irrigation management. And just before I leave irrigation management, of course, too much water, too little water, both of those extremes are going to enhance your anthracnose symptoms. And James, are these going to be in order of importance? Are you able to prioritize one over another or are they equally important? I do think irrigation and nitrogen are probably the most important ones. I'll say that. Okay. So we, we will go in order of importance. And so it, Joe Roberts did a really nice study showing that replacing 40%, 60% ET, those kind of programs that promote wilt stress are going to enhance disease. 
So I think now with uh, moisture meters and, and really great irrigation management programs, we're better off than we were 20 years ago for managing water, which is good news. And moving on to nitrogen, we know that anthracnose is a low nitrogen disease, meaning that it's more severe under conditions of low nitrogen. So for poa greens in the Northeast, we saw that even as high as a tenth of a pound of nitrogen every week, it seems really excessive. But our research showed that it wasn't too excessive in terms of affecting playability but that would be a really high nitrogen input system to really reduce disease symptoms. And if you're going to do more research, I think where to go from there is uh, doing some growth rate tracking and and trying to correlate that with anthracnose disease severity uh, going forward. Uh, And then I I think next after that would be mowing height. We know that low mowing conditions uh, promote disease. So the balance there is, you know, mowing also is the factor that has the greatest effect on ball roll distance, meaning higher mowing is going to slow down green speed. So if you're going to make a compromise, this is one of the conclusions we made from that study that we mentioned before where we combine mowing sand and, and nitrogen. If you're going to make some compromises to improve playability and still reduce disease, we would encourage you to slightly lower your mowing height. We know that mowing doesn't affect disease as much as nitrogen does. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So don't lower your nitrogen in- inputs to try to improve your playability, to try to increase ball roll distance. For one, it's not going to do much. And two, you're going to enhance anthracnose severity. So lower your mowing height and keep that nitrogen uh, adequate. And then lastly, sand top dressing. You just want to uh, get enough sand to match the growth of the turf, protect the crowns. And that's kind of the principle behind uh, the way sand top dressing protects against anthracnose. It also dilutes thatch, which we know can enhance disease symptoms. So. Right. So, you know, it's interesting, James, mowing lower, keeping the end rate up, that's pretty consistent again with what Bill Kreiser's saying mm-hmm. and then throwing the PGRs in there. And it's interesting What you guys really, I think, should be applauded for is even though, you know, obviously in a typical pathology program, they're spraying plots like crazy. And certainly you've got chemical concoctions that you have and can use to stay the problem. But probably at places like Ridgewood in the metro New York area, you saw where a lot of those chemical programs weren't able to hold it back. And and so it made sense to have those cultural practices at the forefront, James. Now, listen, I want to transition right away to another part of your technical career, your most recent publication on the risk index work you've done with the dollar spot models, right? Mm -hmm. I I just, uh, I reviewed it over the weekend and came in ready to ask you all these (laughs) questions. But, you know, fundamentally, what I think you're saying when we shift to dollar spot now, uh, you know, we think about nitrogen, we think about rolling, we think about dew removal and, and the late Dave Williams's old work with dew removal. Now we're starting to think about really quantifying the environment, right? That one side of the triangle that we've always said, hey, this is what dictates it. I guess I want you to talk just for a second about sort of the way you approached looking at the dollar spot models that are out there, because many people only know the Smith-Kearns model, but you looked at a number of models that try to predict dollar spot. That's right, Frank. I'll make the clarification. We we looked at different action thresholds ah. using that equation that is the Smith-Kearns model. Ah, okay. So different interpretations of the risk index. Ah. So yeah, when I was designing my PhD dissertation research, I know I wanted to look at dollar spot. I know I wanted to incorporate something like host resistance because we have so many great new bankrest cultivars. Mm-hmm. I also want to incorporate fungicide programming. And then also, I didn't see a lot of people 
working on the Smith Friends model in the Northeast at that point. So I wanted to at least validate it in New Jersey uh, and greater tri-state area and then see if we can make any adjustments to it, improvements, whatever it might be. And so the hypothesis is using a lower susceptibility cultivar, an improved bentgrass cultivar, that current 20% risk index action threshold might not be the perfect fit. It might overpredict disease activity on a cultivar that is almost resistant to the disease. So that's the nature of this research. We were wondering, can you use a 30%, a 40% risk index mm-hmm. to predict disease on something like Declaration, for example, or on a colonial bent grass, which is also very resistant to demolish. And, you know, James, in practical terms, you know, you got 25, 30 acres of bent grass, like a lot of golf courses do in northern climates, mm-hmm. and you've got a, a resistant cultivar, I guess your hypothesis is, can I wait till I get to 40% or 50% till I have to spray? And did you find that was the case? Right. Well, I'll say this too. The work is ongoing. The stuff we found in, in this paper that just was published in Crop Science, that's some of these new action thresholds are being validated right now at Rutgers with another PhD student uh, whose name is Bay. He's also working with Jim Murphy, Bruce Clark. So, it, you know, it may be too early to make conclusions, but yes, it, it does look like a higher risk index will work for something like declaration or any other low susceptibility bentgrass cultivar. And then when there are some other action thresholds that we studied, uh, which were pretty unique, uh, like the slope Mm-hmm. of the risk index. Mm-hmm. If the risk index was currently going up, say from 5% to 40% over the next five days, or whether it was already really high at 60% today, but in three days, it's going to be trending downward and get down to 5%. So without going into too much minutia here, what we saw and what was interesting is that uh, when you plotted out the risk index over time in, in a scatter plot figure, and then you also plot out disease severity, whenever the risk index goes up, the count of infection centers goes up. And then when the risk index goes down, infection centers also go down. Even if the risk index was at 60% and then started going down to 10% over a five-day stretch, the infection center count also went down, which meant the bentgrass was healing and those infection centers were disappearing. But that meant that even though the risk index was over 20 there wasn't as great of a risk of dollar spot. So we saw these periods where that risk index of 20% might also be over-predicting uh, during a period of, of a decreasing slope. That's another one of these action thresholds we're studying right now. Listening to James discuss how poor course infrastructure, especially excessive surface organic matter, increases the severity of stress-induced diseases such as anthracnose basal rot. Dryject services offer unique soil management tactics not available in a single machine. Science has demonstrated the benefit of water injection cultivation, and sand channel injection offers a unique opportunity to break through any restricting layers in your soil profile. This keeps the water flowing through and plenty of air in the root zone. Dryject is a flexible and affordable service available throughout the U.S. and used by many of the great golf courses in the U.S., and I've personally seen the value of this practice, and now with the ability to inject non-dried sand and at several depths, it offers even more advantages. Contact your local Dryject service representative or visit dryject.com. I 
I want to talk to you about the transition you made in your career recently from being such a deep scholar uh, in the same place, doing not just cultural work and anthracnose, but then this uh, modeling work for dollar spot stuff for your PhD. And now you're working in the industry. I'm wondering what that's like, not just working for Bear, but making that transition because many are doing it, whether it's undergrad to maybe industry or it's graduate school to uh, industry. How's that transition been for you? It's been very smooth, and I, I've been very happy and satisfied with it in general. But what I do in my current role, Frank, just to, to let folks know, is uh, you know, I'm a field development scientist, which means I, I develop new technologies that serve the turf ornamental and pest management public health markets. And most of my time in my role is spent planning and overseeing research projects, which typically involves some level of collaboration with university or, or private researchers. And I'm based here in the Western United States. I'm based in Southern California, but my territory is really big. It stretches from the Dakotas down through the Rocky Mountain states and, and everything west, including Hawaii and Alaska. And not just turf. Uh, go through your crops again. Yeah. Turf and ornamental. And then my big flex here in, in my role is into the pest management, so urban entomology, cockroaches, bed bugs, and the like, and then also public health, which means vectors like mosquitoes. You know, mosquitoes are the most deadly animal on the planet. Yeah. And so I get to do some really meaningful stuff in my job, too. My first love will always be turf, of course, in, in, in the golf industry, but I also get a lot of satisfaction knowing that I'm developing solutions to things that not only cause a lot of nuisance in folks' lives, but also cause disease and illness you know, on that public health side of the, the yeah. business. I was going to say, and, you know, you're certainly working with a international giant in this space, right? Bayer has been mm -hmm. a, a pretty progressive leader in the space and, of course, has hired a lot of our turf colleagues over the years uh, to work. Probably a different role than yours, but for sure they're looking for solid expertise. And I'm wondering, when you come in with one expertise and all of a sudden they say, yeah, you better know a little bit about urban entomology, what's it like starting from scratch again after being told you were Dr. Hempfling and now you feel uh -huh. like you're, oh, yeah. you're a kindergartner in the urban entomology class? Oh, of course. The imposter syndrome is a very yeah. real phenomenon. <laughs> and, uh, you just got to be careful. You can't compare your day one in the job to somebody else's day 10,000 in their role. I was replacing or, or filling in a position of a guy named Chris Olson, who had been in his role for decades, been with Barron Legacy Companies for decades, and was really an institution and had so much knowledge up there. And I had the opportunity to shadow him for a number of months before officially taking over the job, which was great. But I kept on thinking, man, I'll never know as much as Chris. You know, I kept on looking for the USB port in the back of his head so I could put it in my thumb drive and download all that information. But you just got to remind yourself that you'll get there. Again, you can't do that kind of comparisons. But, but you're right. I mean, uh, folks make it sound like it's hard to move back and forth between academia and industry, and it's not. Uh, I had a friend who was ahead of me in grad school. Out of grad school, he got a job with a, I won't name the company, but a multinational company, not in the TNO space, but he became the global R&D lead for this multinational company, incredibly successful. And then he left that position to take a faculty job at a university because he wanted a change of pace. Mm -hmm. And even in the turf space, we saw people from the industry come to academia. Jim Baird was a USGA agronomist, and now he's an academic at UC Riverside. And like you said, we saw vice versa, too. A lot of folks from academia go to industry 
And just at Bear alone, you know, we've seen Frank Wong, Zach Riker, sure. Rob Glendieski, all these folks, sure. really talented folks. So I think it's really important to keep an open mind. And um, there are a lot of opportunities, both in industry and academia. For me personally, I, you know, the reason I decided to get a PhD was because I wanted to be Professor Hempflein, you know, at a university. <laughs> I, I thought that would be really cool. Uh, you know, when I was making that backyard putting green, I was finding all these extension publications online and thought, man, one day I could be a doctor of turf grass. This is amazing. <laughs> um, but, you know, through grad school, I uh, there was this paper in Nature that was published showing the number of academic research scientists rose by 150% during that decade that I was in grad school. Meanwhile, the number of tenured and full-time faculty positions plateaued or was even declining in some places. So it didn't really look that great in the job market for an academic job. And then there are a number of other factors ranging from flexibility to pay to opportunities for growth and development, teamwork. The more I learned about academic jobs, I had a number of friends that when they graduated, they got industry jobs. The more I learned about industry jobs, I went to say, the more I realized that I can get that same satisfaction that I wanted in academia. I can get that same satisfaction from industry. There are a lot of incredibly talented folks here. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like uh, coming from the center part of the country where, you know, collectively we could paint it as a broad brush and say, well, you know, mm-hmm. the flyover or the red and blue sort of colors that we use to describe things. How's it been living in three distinctly different parts of the United States? Oh, it's been a blast. I, I love experiencing new cultures, new people. Enid, Oklahoma is a great place. It's a great place to be from. I enjoyed leaving the comfort uh, you know, because I went to school just an hour away from my house. Yeah. I went to Stillwater, Open to say, I really enjoyed going to, to New Jersey, being right there just across the bridge from New York City. I spent so much time exploring Manhattan, Brooklyn, all the great things that New York City has to offer. Eating good pizza. Oh, Frank, I am, <laughs> yeah, I miss the pizza. You're I miss ruined. the pizza, You're the ruined. bagels, the Italian food. It's, yeah. <laughs> California's got great Mexican food and great sushi, but man, the pizza is lacking. <laughs> Okay, so listen, it is great to talk about experience in the country. I've gotten to do it mostly through traveling. You know, I lived in the Midwest for an early part of my career on the faculties at other places. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you said Enid is a great place to be from. And I'm wondering if one of the things you took from that place is this guitar virtuosity that you have. Uh, I shared it with our producer, uh, who was just uh, thrilled with the Going to California piece you did uh, with the folks from the Carolinas, I believe, James. So talk a little bit about your musical background, because it just, you know, demonstrates just some real brilliance. Have you been at it for a while, or did you pick it up uh, later in life? Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, Frank, I appreciate that. I have been at it a long while. I've played guitar since I was, I think, about 13 years old. And even before that, I was playing drums. I was playing the trap set, performing at my church on the church praise and worship team, playing drums. My grandpa was a jazz and big band drummer. I've got uncles who were gigging drummers in Oklahoma playing country western or western swing kind of stuff. And then on the other side of the family, I've got singer, songwriter uncles who play guitar. So I took music seriously at a young age. I wanted to be as good or better than the family members that came before me. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that having hobbies and interests outside of work, too, is extremely important uh, and helps you become a well-rounded person. But, yeah, in, in high school, I was already doing some solo acoustic guitar performances there in Enid. By the time I went to undergrad in Stillwater, I had already visited a couple bluegrass music festivals and witnessed firsthand the prowess of the 
flat pick bluegrass guitarist and and from there it was off to the races and spending countless hours in the the figurative woodshed honing my bluegrass skills and <laughs> in the first couple of years at Oklahoma State I uh, I met two brothers a mandolin player and a fiddle player and they came from a family bluegrass band I met them at a late night bluegrass jam that was hosted by a good old boy who I met in my plant pathology class and and I hit it off with these brothers we started a band and gigged all through undergrad and then when I got to New Jersey it was a similar story I when I was assistant superintendent at Ridgewood Country Club I made some time on a Monday night to go to a monthly bluegrass jam. And I met some folks who already had a band and they were looking for a guitarist and they liked the way I played. And so I joined their band and I played gigs with them all throughout grad school in New Jersey, New York city, upstate New York. You know, we, uh, of course, that meant a lot of late nights and early mornings at the turf farm. But, man, we got to make time for the things that we love, for the yeah. things that fuel us and rejuvenate us. That's exactly right. And I want to get to that. But first, we're going to talk about whether Rich Buckley, my brother from another mother, was a groupie for you. Was he? Uh, <laughs> I know he, he is absolutely a, a passionate follower of live music. Uh, was mm-hmm. he a regular uh, fan in attendance? So, yeah, I mean, I'm so grateful for Rich Buckley. We had, uh, I spent a lot of time just hanging out with him in the plant diagnostic lab, talking music. Uh, I could just talk with Rich all the time about music. And I, you know, one thing uh, I was, I was always shy about sharing, you know, I hear, I, I say it's so important to do these things that rejuvenate us, but at the same time, I was always shy to share too much about my personal life. Uh, of course, I would share it with Rich, but I didn't like invite folks to my, my shows uh, when I was in grad school, just mainly because of the time that it would take for them to get there. But toward the end of my grad school career at Rutgers, Rich and I started going to shows together. My band played at my graduation party, and and Rich came along with some other folks. And even by that time, you know, Jim Murphy hosted a graduation party for me, and my band came to Jim Murphy's house and played a little (laughs) bit at that party, too. So that was fun to kind of marry those worlds, albeit toward the end of my time there. But it it was great. Well, you brought up just a couple of wonderful points about uh, taking good care of ourselves, right, James? You've been a little bit outspoken about this uh, on Twitter, Mm -hmm. where we all, some of our turf people live. Uh, I lived in one persona for a really long time and then started selling sunglasses, apparently, uh, and (laughs) and got kicked off. And thank you for for catching that, but it didn't save me. Uh, But one of the things I have noticed is that uh, more people of your generation and now my generation, even a little bit older, and particularly in this business that, that seems to take a toll. It's, it's a bit regimented, almost like the military, right? The grass is growing, doesn't really care what day of the week it is. And, and it's pretty easy for us to get locked into that regiment. And certainly at a place like Ridgewood, where the demands are really high, you can appreciate the relentlessness of trying to produce those conditions under ideal conditions, never mind challenging conditions, particularly as you get further and further south. James, when you have to think about taking good care of yourself, do you sometimes find it's easy to get lost in this business? Absolutely. It is a a really uh, tough job. Uh, you're right. The grass never takes breaks. So we have to do it for ourselves. And I I am a firm believer that mental health is physical health. It's just a, as important as our physical health. And it's not a destination. It's a process. It's a journey. And it's all about how you take care of yourself along that journey, not necessarily where you're going. Mm-hmm. What I learned during my journey is it's important to open up and talk about things, talk about anxiety, stress, depression, whatever it is that you might struggle with. Mm-hmm. You know, don't struggle in silence. As uh, I, I hear that 
statement a lot. I firmly believe in that. It's okay to be unsilent about these things. And we're starting to see that, James, right? Yeah, we're starting to see that. Exactly. I mean, Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, you know, never missed one of his episodes as a kid. And (laughs) he has this quote that says, anything that's human is mentionable. And anything that is mentionable can be more manageable. And so when we start to talk about our feelings, they become less overwhelming, less upsetting, less scary. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I'm kind of an empathetic person. I'm an empath. So I think if we talk about our feelings instead of pretending that they don't exist, then Mm -hmm. the world world is going to be a better place. And and what what you'll see is that once you start to talk about it, you'll realize that you're joining a big club a big group of people that are already talking about it. You're not the first person who struggled with mental health and you won't be the last. So, you know, James, what comes to mind when we have to do this is particularly in our business, there's a certain weakness associated sometimes with talking about our emotions, right? I mean, they're distracting, they're soft, we're weak. You know the narrative that certainly gets mm-hmm. created, uh, particularly for men, right? Oh, and yeah. In our business, uh, in the turf business, it's a male-dominated uh, environment. Um, now, we're starting to see with great satisfaction women starting to take the stage, which is so spectacular. But can you talk a little bit about, as you thought about trying to be more vulnerable, why that might have felt so scary to begin with? Yeah. You know, traditionally speaking, it's not something that men do talk about their feelings, you know, not to be trite, but that toxic masculinity, you know, it, it does have a lot of detrimental effects on young men today. And so it, it is tough to get vulnerable and to talk about these things. But again, it's time for a change. And if you put yourself out there, you'll, you'll find your tribe. You know, there are people out there waiting to celebrate you for who you are. Everybody has struggles, and it's okay to talk about them. And, and as you mentioned, you know, we're becoming a more inclusive industry, and that's fantastic. I, I absolutely love that. I'm going to try to be a champion of diversity, equity, inclusion, especially in our industry. But we have to re- remind ourselves that inclusion is great, but you want to include people in an environment that is always changing for the better. It's not a one-way thing. You can't just include people in the party and then not really change the dynamic of the party, Mm. right, and still have norms that that are not really encouraging people to open up. So it's a paradigm shift, Frank, and I think we're making some great efforts, and I'm encouraged by it all, and I'm looking forward to, to seeing what the future holds. Therein lies the rub, James, right? The Mm -hmm. adaptations when a system starts to include even the discussion of things emotional, even the recognition of, you know, mental health as something that has to be tended to just like you stay home because, you know, you've got some other illness, right? That maybe you just need a little bit of downtime. The adaptations that we have to make are are not always so easy Are you hopeful that we're going to make those adaptations or are there some things that you've noticed that are changing in the right direction beyond just exclusion? Do you see our industry making some of those adaptations? Yeah, absolutely. I think we've got a lot of people that have very deep convictions in these areas and they're going to really champion the change and and be the leaders. You know, you might as well come along for the ride or else you're going to get, you know, not left in the dust, but the train is in motion and you might as well jump on now. Well, James, it's gone by too fast the time we've had to spend together. Really appreciate you getting up on the West Coast and having this conversation with me. It's it's just a joy to hear your voice and to hear you speak so eloquently about about things as deep as uh, risk indexes and all the way out to 
how you picked up the guitar and your attention to your mental health and well-being, James. I'm so I, I'm always so hopeful about our industry when I know that there's guys like you in it. Uh, I'm a little bit sorry to see you working around urban entomology, <laughs> but uh, we still feel that you're connected here. So thanks very much for taking the time to to join me today, James. Thank you, Frank. My pleasure. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at DryJack, the only machine that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass, and the Plant Food Company, providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability for 40 years. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced once again at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger, graphic design, Nicole Rossi, theme music, Tucker Rossi, and executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.